All right, welcome to Low Each Other Podcast. I'm your host, Pastor Jay, and uh, this week we'll continue our series that I've been doing. It's sort of, sort of a discussion slash book review of the book Pagan Christianity, uh, exploring the pagan origins of our Christian practices by uh, authors Frank Viola and George Barna. That's uh, Barna of Barna Research Group. And uh, it's been an interesting read, um, mostly, sadly for me, disappointing read. It's a book that I've had on my shelf or, well, in my docket to read for a while. I have a digital file of it, but uh, in my in my file to read for a while and just haven't gotten around to it for a number of years. I have a, a number of, I don't know, probably several dozen books that I want to read that I just never get around to, but I finally got around to reading this book, and I was excited about it because it does, you know, at least on the back cover of it, you know, it's, it's talking about, okay, these pagan origins of things, and I know uh, being a, a big fan of church history myself, and well, all history really, but especially church history, I am aware of some of the things that I assumed that they were going to be talking about uh, as far as pagan origins of some of the practices and the traditions of the church, and um, particularly uh, when Constantine uh, sort of ended the persecution and sort of sort of unofficially made Christianity the state religion of Rome, there were a lot of pagan practices that came into the church as a part of that, and they do touch on some of those things. And so I was already aware of that and looking towards some of those things, but um, as I've mentioned several times, they really, man, <laughs> they really overstate their case and like really push it to, to extremes that I never would have thought of. And, and at first, it was very challenging for me as I read these chapters and um, was kind of worried about it and wondering about them. And then after I was like, okay, take a, take a deep breath and kind of calm back down and let's look at what does the Bible actually say here then I had a lot of questions about it, because it's like, okay, I don't think this is really saying what they're wanting it to say, and I think they're they're kind of building up straw men arguments that, that they kind of knock down and be like, see, this is what we're saying, and then that's not really what what's actually being said there, and so... Uh, it's a little deceptive on the surface, because they have a lot of you know, footnotes and endnotes, and uh, seem, seem on the surface to have done a very, very thorough... Uh, historical, you know, research job on it, but uh, if you start digging into it, some of the research they do, they're, you know, they're they're piecing it together and just kind of taking bits and pieces of what the the uh, original authors were saying there, uh, and the research that they're following, and it doesn't doesn't track to the arguments that they're trying, the conclusions, especially that they're trying to make, and so uh, it's kind of where we're at overall in this series, and so today we're going to kind of come to. <laughs> A, re a real personal sort of touchstone for me, and that's the role of the pastor uh, in the local church. And also, I'm going to kind of combine this. They kind of do this in a different chapter, but I'm going to kind of combine the idea of a paid pastor, a paying staff uh, that, that the church is supporting. And so um, they are going to argue that the role of a single pastor in the church, uh, especially as a paid position, is not only unbiblical, that there is no biblical support for that position, they also argue that it is detrimental to the growth of the church to have a single pastor like that in that position. And so, um, obviously, being a pastor and a full-time paid staff pastor myself, I'm kind of like, you know, this one stabs you right in the heart. But, uh, you know, I always, you know, I was like, okay, well, let's, let's see what they've got to say, and uh, am I going to be convicted about this? And so, and uh, just kind of to start off here, they come into the chapter here, and uh, it's uh, chapter 5 in the book, and uh, <laughs> this is how they start off. They say, 
the pastor. He is the fundamental figure of the Protestant faith. So prevailing is the pastor in the minds of most Christians that he is often better known or more highly praised and more heavily relied upon than Jesus Christ himself. See what I'm talking about, that overstating things? Uh, remove the pastor and most Protestant churches would be thrown into panic. Remove the pastor and Protestantism as we know it would die. The pastor is the dominating focal point, mainstay, and centerpiece of the contemporary church. He is the embodiment of the Protestant Christian movement. But here is the profound irony. There is not a single verse in the entire New Testament that supports the existence of the modern-day pastor. He simply did not exist in the early church. All right, so that's how they open up the chapter. And I mean, right off the bat, it's like slap in the face of uh, you know everything that that we've been taught to believe or, or understand. And um, that's not a bad thing per se, because that, that's kind of the appeal of this book, is it does shake up uh, what, what we're used to and what we've just kind of accepted without question. And I think it is important to question the origins and the traditions that, uh, that we hold to. Um, but once again, just really overstating that case. So let me get into a couple of the points that they're making. Um, First of all, they state that the word pastor only appears one time in the New Testament, and they are correct. Only one time does the word pastor or shepherd, uh, pastor is the Latin version of the word shepherd, that is uh, translated as shepherd, does that word appear in the New Testament, and that's in Ephesians 4.11. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors or shepherds and teachers. For the equipping of the saints and building up, you know, for the building up and the equipping of the saints to do the ministry of the church. That's uh, how that verse goes. That's the only passage and the only verse in the entire New Testament where that word that we use as pastor comes from. They are absolutely correct about that. However, there are many passages that talk about these Christian leaders that are over the church, and they're usually called elders. Elders. Um, or bishops, as they can get translated as as well. And, of course, that's a, that's a, a term that should ring the bells in a lot of uh, churches uh, and a lot of Christian minds because, you know, there are churches and denominations that have bishops and have elders and things like that. Uh, in the Southern Baptist tradition, we don't have bishops or elders in, the, in, the, in the, that name, but the roles that they take are taken on by pastors. Now, as I said, it's true that that word only appears that one time, but the, the principle behind it of being a shepherd um, is all over the Bible, Old Testament and New. Um, and I think that's where that role kind of came in when they started talking about what is it that we want the leader of a church to sort of, or the leaders of the church to sort of represent, well, we want them to be a shepherd, a pastor of the church. And so I think, that, I think they're just kind of missing the point of what's going on there. It's it, you know just because we're not using we're using that word that only appears once doesn't mean that it's not a concept that's found in the Bible. Now they would also argue that the idea of having any sort of uh, leaders over um, the the people in the church is hindering their spiritual growth and also uh, diminishing the view of the uh, the priesthood of all believers in that every Christian is a priest in the, uh, the New Testament idea, which is true. All Christians are priests in God's kingdom, but that doesn't mean that we, you know, every Christian sitting in the church is qualified or able, uh, spiritually gifted and inclined to teach. 
Um, those are specific spiritual gifts that certain people have and certain people do not have. And it uh, doesn't mean that they are lesser you know, important in importance or lesser in value. It just means that they have different roles and different functions that they serve in the church. As Paul goes on to use that illustration of the body, you know, how can the big toe say to the thumb, you know, I wish I was a thumb? Well, it doesn't work that way. Where would the... <laughs> Where would the body be without the big toe, right? I think he actually uses illustrations of ears and nose and eyes. But, you know, we can't all be the same thing. Some people are gifted in certain areas. Well, people that are gifted in teaching and leading in that regard take on that role uh, and that position, if you will, uh, in the church. And now we could get into the discussion, which I do think they make a valid point that the modern version of the pastor as it exists in the United States of America in the modern setting could possibly, well, and I would agree actually probably is a hindrance to the full functioning body of Christ. But I think it it ties in more than just being the pastor, but it ties into... um, you know the way our churches are set up, the buildings that we talked about before with the, you know, uh, everybody's facing forward and, and looking at the people on the stage, and it's only the people that are on the stage that are really involved in, in leading the worship, and everybody else is just kind of a spectator. I agree with them on all those things, and uh, I I have not read the second book yet. As I said, it took me a number of years to get to this one, but there's a second book in, the, in this series uh, called Rethinking Church, I think is what it is, Rethinking Church, where they actually present what they call organic Christian um, ideas or organic Christian movement, uh, which you you might call house church or home church kind of ideas, although they would argue and with a and quibble with that uh, distinction. But um, I do agree in principle with the ideas that some of the things that we do and some of the practices that we have in the modern church setting are detrimental to spiritual growth and to the full body of Christ functioning as the New Testament church is intended to function. I agree with that. And I do think that some of the roles that the pastor in the modern day setting takes on is a hindrance to that as well, especially as a full-time paid staff person of the church. I think that actually hinders a lot of spiritual growth in the church. Um, I've seen it um, in, in churches that I've served in because here's how it goes. Well, you know, we want to reach out to the community. We want to evangelize. And so you kind of mentioned that in a sermon or you talk to the church about that and they say, well, pastor, that's what we pay you to do. Okay. Well, we should be visiting, you know, our neighbors and people in the hospital. Well, pastor, that's what we pay you to do. And so I absolutely agree that there's this mentality of like, well, we pay this guy to go do those things for us so that we don't have to do them. And that definitely is a problem in the modern church. And, and they're hitting that right on the head. There's also a problem with the with the modern pastor position, and especially in bigger churches, um, where there's this sort of CEO mentality, where the pastor of a mega church of millions of people, you know, thousands of people and millions of dollars going through there, and there's the, this mentality that you're running a business and that, you know, you've got the the pastor is the CEO and the face of the company, if you will, and then you've got your deacon body, which is like an executive board, uh, you know, kind of thing, and so, you know, and and they're running things with a profit loss margin, and, and, you know, (laughs) there's this idea, this mentality that they're running a business instead of the ministry, 
Um, which brought to mind, as I was thinking about that, there's a great book by John Piper. It said, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, that touches upon some of these things uh, in arguing that, that churches should not be run as businesses and adopting business models, but you know, should be run as a, as a family, as a brotherhood. And so... Um, but uh, I agree. I agree with all those statements. I think there's major issues with that. Now, there are some verses that I want to highlight um, that argue against some of the things that they are talking about. Um, a couple of verses in the book of Hebrews, actually, in Hebrews 13. Uh, Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, "Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith." Remember your leaders. So Viola and Barna seem to be arguing that there should be no hierarchy, if you will. There should be no one over another Christian in a church setting. Well, this seems to argue against that fact. If you've got the leaders, then you naturally have people that are spiritually over you and authority over you. Uh, and there are a number of passages. We're just going to look at a couple. And there are a number of passages where that seems to be the case in the New Testament. And so, uh, even going a little bit further on in chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Obey your leaders and submit to them. So, once again, if you don't have someone who is in spiritual authority over you, who are you obeying and submitting to in the church? Um, so, there, there is, in the New Testament some set sort of idea of a hierarchical system where there are spiritual leaders in positions of authority over others in the church. That's how it's set up. In 1 Peter chapter 5, he, uh, Peter says, So I exhort or encourage the elders among you as, fellow, as a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd, oh, there's that word shepherd, pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, right? Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God has would have you to do, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So here is you know, Peter exhorting the leaders in the church of how to respond and lead their people in Christ-like manner, which the pastor is called to do. No, the pastor should not be domineering over. No, a pastor should not be uh, lording it over. No, a pastor should not be expecting to receive uh, all sorts of honor and respect and all this kind of stuff and, and privileges for being in that position. A pastor is a servant to his congregation and to his church and to his community. And uh, I would agree that there are some pastors and some churches that see it in that light, and those are a problem. Uh, and we all, all pastors, are guilty of falling into that trap sometimes. We're all you know, sinful, broken people, and so we all fall into that trap at some point or another. But you know, the goal is to be Christ-like in our humility and our service to one another. We don't do it to get the praise and the honor of men. We do it to serve God because we've been called into that position. Um, tying into uh, another, they actually go and do this in another chapter in the book, but tying into that is the idea of this paid staff, paid salary uh, kind of idea. And they, uh, 
they actually argue in the book that uh, you know pastors weren't paid uh, staff members until the time of Constantine, which is which is somewhat true. Um, pastors were paid in a sense before that, though I would argue, but they were paid in housing and food and and you know basically how to live, uh, the the necessities and the essentials of life. It was not until Constantine, from my studies that I can find anyway, where you start getting pastors actually getting, you know, bags of gold, you know, getting salaries, getting tax-exempt status, all that kind of stuff, all came about from Constantine. And they are very right in the fact that a lot of those things were pagan in origin as far as when it came about in that time period in the 4th century. However, there are biblical principles for a pastor making their living, so to speak, off of being and doing the work of the church. Um, a couple of those passages that I found, uh, in 1 Corinthians 9.14 says, The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. I'm not sure, um, I don't have the revised edition in this. I think they, they did a revised version of this book where they actually answer some questions that people had brought up about this. And I don't know if they, they actually approach this, but I'm like, that verse alone seems to suggest that, yes, people who preach the gospel, people who minister in this way, deserve to make their living from that. In other words, to get paid, to receive you know, nourishment and housing and shelter and whatever from that. Uh, in a modern setting, that would be getting a paycheck. So that seems pretty explicit to me, and it's not just there. In 1 Timothy 5, 17 to 18, he says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching, which is the primary function of the modern-day pastor, preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So, once again, there's two passages just right there, uh, just on the surface, and there's plenty of others we could look at too, but those two are the most explicit that I could find, that seem to ex imply the idea that the, that the pastor, the, the leader of the church, should get paid for their work. And it is a benefit that you could have a full-time pastor that could devote themselves fully to that and not have to worry about doing something else. Now, yes, there are plenty of churches that cannot afford to pay a full-time pastor, and you have plenty of pastors that are willing to be what's called bivocational and work a full-time job or work a part-time job in addition to being the pastor of the church. And I will tell you on a personal level, if there ever, I do, I do not ever want to be a burden to my church. I am a full-time pastor right now, but if there ever came a point in the future where they could not afford to pay me full-time, I would go find a full-time job and still be serving in this church as, as much as I could as a full-time pastor as well. And so, um, and most pastors I know would more than be willing to do that. It's just, it's, it's a blessing to be able to devote all of my time to this particular ministry. Um, but if, you know, push comes to shove, I'm still going to do this job. I would just have to go get a secular job as well in order to put food on the table. And so, um, there's nothing biblically wrong with paid staff. Now, like I said, there are some sort of, I guess, some uh, tendencies of the congregation that goes with that, that, hey, we pay you to do this job, that we don't have to do anything. I agree that that is a problem. That's a problem in all the churches, especially in America, where 
you know, we have this paid staff, and, and it seems like the bigger the church is, the more that problem seems to be, because you have more staff, and uh, more people just doesn't breed, you know, more volunteers in doing the work. They're like, hey, I've got better things to do. You do it. I'm paying you to do it. So um, I see the problems with that. And like I said, I see the problems with the, the CEO mentality. Um, but I don't think they're, they're finding in the Bible evidence that they're saying that they're trying to find. And that's the problem I have with this book uh, in overstating the cases that they're making. Uh, one final thing I do want to kind of talk about is uh, they will also bring up the point of not of there not being a single one person who would be a pastor or a leader in the church, but there is a plurality uh, in the Bible of elders or presbytos or bishops, as they're called, in the, in the early church. And I would agree with them. Uh, there does seem to be a plurality of elders um, in a city or in a location. Um, and so I'm, I'm perfectly fine with the, with the idea of multiple pastors in a church. In fact, I think that would be beneficial. Um, it's just prob the problem with that now, of course, is you have, you kind of have it divided out by, um, by roles, I guess you would say, uh, where you have a worship leader, which they do actually spend a chapter on the worship leader. I'm not going to talk about that one, but uh, they do spend a chapter talking about the worship leader and why that's a problem too, but... They have, you have your worship leader, you have your youth minister. They also spend time talking about the youth minister too. But you, so you have you do have a plurality of leaders in that sense, at least in the bigger churches that can afford to pay either full or part time. Even these different positions, they just kind of are parcelled out into different roles. I mean, you have administrative pastors in some of the bigger churches, or executive pastors, um, associate pastors. Pastors over senior citizens or family ministries or, or over, you know, visitations and different things. And so um, there are those different kind of roles that are divided up. I would agree, though, that I think that's probably a problem. I think that, yeah, the, the single uh, pastor role is a problem because of sort of the CEO mentality. And also I do, I do agree that there is... Um, I don't know, sort of a, a hindrance to the spiritual growth and the people sort of stepping up and taking on the roles that they should be taking, um, both with the pastor and also sometimes in a lot of churches with the deacons. You know, it's like, well, we have deacons and the deacons are supposed to do all these jobs, but the deacons are just there to help and guide as well. And so, you know, they can't do everything. And so I do see the problems with that. Um, but uh, and as I said, I haven't read the second book, although I do, I am familiar somewhat with Frank Viola's ideas about organic church, and I do not agree with a lot of them. Um, as we talked about with the order of service, he's a big fan of spontaneity um, and um, everybody teaching each other. And uh, we talked about that with the sermon, I think, last week. Uh, this idea that, you know, everybody could just say, you know, here's a word from the Lord and then we'll talk about it and we'll do this. It's like if that's your main source or, or, or as uh, one guy put it, your main diet of Bible knowledge, you're, you're getting bits and pieces rather than systematic teaching uh, that you really, really need uh, in order to be fed properly. Uh, that's kind of like you're, you're eating you know, a bite of steak over here and then eating a lot of candy over there and you're, you're not getting a full balanced diet uh, if you're doing that kind of teaching. And so um, I have a lot of problems with that, that format and that, um, that system that, that he has proposed. 
However, once again, I will admit I have not read the second book, and they do say that you kind of need to read these books together. So like I said, maybe I'll get into that book here in <laughs> maybe in a couple more years. Uh, I'll read that second book, and I can come back and say, okay, maybe you know, maybe I'm even maybe I'm overstating the case that they're making here, but we'll see. But um, I think that's where I'm going to leave it for today. Uh, like I said, this has been an interesting book, and um, this may I think I'm probably going to kind of leave it here. Um, there's a, a few more chapters that we could talk about, but I think I've touched upon most of the main issues that I had with this book. Um, it's an interesting read. There are um, you know a lot of good, valid points that I think the authors are making. Um, and I, I think it's, you know, for someone who is spiritually mature enough to understand that these are not the end-all be-all and wouldn't be panicked by these things, I think it's a good read and it's a good thing for, for us to read and be aware. Some of the historical research they do, I think, is spot on and is excellent and, and is good. Some of it, not so much, um, or at least the way that they're interpreting some of the results of those things. But uh, overall, it's a good book. It's a good, valuable book to read. Um, but I would not, I would not say it's in my like top, you know, list of books that you have to have on your shelf. I think it's just kind of an interesting read, and you can read it once and put it down and uh, not not read it again. So uh, don't buy it. Borrow it from the library if you can. I would suggest. And so, uh, but it's been an interesting read, and uh, that's that's kind of where we'll leave leave it on that. I think next week I'm going to talk about, uh, I really have been kind of feeling this one, and I may take a couple of weeks or maybe even a few weeks to do this. I'm not sure right now how long it will take to do this. Um, but I want to kind of talk about the state of affairs in the Southern Baptist Convention right now, the convention to which I belong. Uh, there are a lot of things that have gone on and are continuing to go on in the Southern Baptist Convention. I think I want to take a week or two and talk about some of those things and sort of my viewpoints on those. Uh, about where things kind of sit right now with the Southern Baptist Convention. And so we'll pick up there next week, and uh, we'll talk to you then. Have a great week.